Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and yes, in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Monsters lurking under your bed or deep in the forest. That unknown creature lurking just out of sight. And frighteningly imagined creatures, ghosts, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. So, sit back. Appearance? Kidnapping? Murder? Maybe all three. Who knows? So, with that said, we will still be playing our vanish, or any form of the word vanish. That means vanish, vanished, vanishing, you, n- you name it. You got it. That's going to be a single shot. And every time I say, Wisconsin, that's going to be a double shot. Yep, you guessed it. Someone in the Midwest felt I wasn't doing enough episodes in the Midwest, so I'll try to hold back that good old Fargo accent, but no promises. (laughs) All right, now that we got the business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's Dark Enigma. All right, so put on your Sherlock hat and listen to the evidence in the kidnapping, murder, and possible disappearance of Evelyn Grace Hartley. Evelyn Grace Hartley was born on November 21st, 1937, in La Crosse County, Wisconsin. She's an American missing young girl who cryptically vanished on October 24th, 1953. Her vanishing started an inquiry including 2,000 people. In the year following her vanishing, the authorities and investigators addressed in in excess of 3,500 individuals. And to this very day, no hint of her or her remains have ever been found. Evelyn Hartley was a junior at Central High School at the time of her kidnapping. She was a straight-A student, associated with many school sports and exercises, She was also an officer at the Presbyterian Youth Program and Westminster Fellowship at her local church, and even sang in the choir. And her pastor described her as quiet, dependable, and devoted. She was popular, but did not have a serious boyfriend. In fact, she was described as shy regarding the opposite sex. Her classmates stated that she would have liked to date, but she wasn't allowed to although her father has been quoted as saying that she thought that she was too young. (laughs) Yeah, right. All fathers think their daughters are too young to date, so I'm pretty sure it was him that said that. She was, of course, the youngest of four children. Her parents, Richard T. Hartley, actually, Dr. Hartley, was a biology professor at La Crosse State College. He specialized in embryology. And Ethel Hartley, who was a homemaker... And just so you know, for reference, La Crosse State University is now the University of Wisconsin, La Crosse. Just in case you didn't know that. Which I didn't, so I had to look it up. Be careful. Keep picking on me and I'm going to do the Fargo accent. It's not good. 
On the evening of October 24, 1953, a lacrosse state college professor by the name of Vigo Rasmussen and his wife hired Evelyn to babysit their 20-month-old daughter, Janice, so that they could attend a college homecoming game. The Rasmussens had a regular babysitter, whose name was Janice also, Lucille Cowley, who was a classmate of Evelyn's, but she had plans and wasn't able to do the job, so they hired Evie as a replacement. The Rasmussen home was located in the 2415 Hoechler Drive. They had only just moved in a few months prior, and it was a brand new house, so there weren't any blinds or curtains in the windows. And, of course, Evie had never babysat for them before or at this house. In fact, Evie hadn't done any babysitting in the three months prior to this, and didn't actually want to babysit, but... Her mom had told her, you know what, you made the commitment and you need to honor it. And so she did. Vigo Rasmussen picked Evelyn up at 6.30 p.m. on the 24th. She brought with her three, four school books with her so that she had planned to study while the baby slept. 15-year-old Evelyn Hartley had never babysat for the Rasmussens. And when she arrived at the family's home, she actually had a big bouquet of flowers. Lita, the Rasmussen seven-year-old, said that she saw her set them on the kitchen table. And that was the last time that Lena would ever see Evelyn. Evelyn was instructed to put the baby, Janice, to bed by 7 p.m. and reminded to place a blanket over the baby. She was supposed to call her parents at 8.30 that same night, just as she did every time she babysat. That night, Evelyn's father, Richard, called the Rasmussen house a few times after she neglected to check in as arranged at 8.30, and he received no answer. Concerned, he headed to the Rasmussen house. At that point, when Richard showed up, the entryways were bolted, the lights and radio were on, and things were dissipated everywhere on the house. The front room furniture had been moved around to better places, just like Evelyn's textbooks had been moved. Richard discovered her shoes were in different rooms. One shoe was upstairs and the other shoe was on the first floor. But he wouldn't find Evelyn in the house. Mr. Hartley additionally found that each room in the house bolted, aside from one in the storm cellar that was situated at the rear of the house. There was one open window where there was a feeling the loss of a screen and the screen was discovered inclining toward an external divider. Moreover, Richard found a short stepladder having a place situated at that open window, and pry marks were found on certain windows and impressions in in other regions of the house. When he finally got into the house, he found the baby Janice asleep in her room, unharmed, but still uncovered. Mr. Hartley had a neighbor, Mr. Frank Linder, who was living across the street, phoned the police at about 9.49 p.m. that night. Mr. Hartley then spoke to the authorities after Frank Linder dialed the number, and police officers Don Schoenfeld and Ken Johnson arrived only moments later. What they found was an attempted forced entry on one of the neighbor's houses as well. Footprints from a size 11 shoe were found in the dirt by the window and in the living room. 
Blood was found on the inside and outside areas of the window, and a puddle of blood that measured roughly 18 inches across was found outside the basement window. The blood had a human hair in it. There was also a bloody handprint found on the side of the Rasmussen home. Blood was also found around the corner at a neighbor's home at 2310 Cooley Drive, and it was smeared on the side of that garage. They also found blood at 2311 Cooley Drive, and the blood was found seeped into a window well. And the police believe that Evelyn may have been rested there for a period of time, and that's how the blood got there. But when Ethel Hartley saw the blood at those addresses, she stated that she knew her daughter was no longer alive. Now, there has been speculation that the blood amount left at all of these locations really was not enough to be fatal. So don't let the size of these blood drops fool you. They're very thin and, yes, very wide, but not enough to be fatal. And, in fact, the police believe that the blood left was from a nosebleed, as if the perpetrator might have slapped or punched Evelyn in the nose, causing it to hemorrhage. And you know how nosebleeds are. They just bleed. It's just what they do. A neighbor, Elvin and Helen Satterback, reported hearing screams at 7.15 p.m. that night. Elvin stated that there were either two or three screams, he wasn't sure, with the last one sounding muffled or choked off in the middle. And he assumed it was neighborhood children and didn't think much of it. He assumed that the reason the last one was muffled was that one of the parents must have taken the child inside the house and the door had been slammed. Helen, however, described the scream as a stop or get away from me kind of scream, and she also stated that at the same time or thereabouts, she saw an old sedan that was dark tan in color. Surprisingly, no roadblocks were utilized that night. I know, right? The Rasmussen's were allowed to return to their home, and Officer Schoenfeld stated that the area where evidence was left was preserved until the next morning because the initial search for Evie, or Evelyn, lasted until around 1 a.m. of the 25th, and it was called off until later that next day. The next morning, nearly a thousand supporters converged on the Rasmussen home to assist in the search for Evelyn. The police department issued a statement earlier requesting volunteers to assist with the search, and that same size 11 footprint was in other yards in the neighborhood, leading detectives to speculate that the suspect or suspects were prowling and came upon Evelyn, and that she wasn't actually the target. But there was evidence that she had been dragged down to the basement and lifted up and out of the same basement window. The perpetrator presumably presumably entered the house by. Now, that basement window, according to the police, was 14 inches wide. And this is important to remember because when I start giving you the people that they think did this, you're going to be like, how the hell did they fit into a 14-inch wide window? Evelyn herself, I don't even think, could fit through that window. But I could be wrong. Anyways, there was also evidence suggesting that the suspect or suspects left out the front door as well which sounds more likely to me. The front door was described as a self-locking door, which I have no idea what that is, and I've lived in many houses. I've never seen a self-locking door, but whatever. But if she had been lifted through the window, it's likely that there was definitely more than one perpetrator. Now, this was also validated by another neighbor by the name of Ed Hoffer, who 
according to him, nearly collided with a two-tone 1941 or possibly 42 Buick speeding westward from the neighborhood. Mr. Hoffer noticed two men and a woman, the man driving with a man in the back seat with the woman. Mr. Hoffer noticed the same three minute the same three people minutes earlier staggering down the street where the blood was later found ed hoffer would be referred to as mr x in future reports and articles for many years after the abduction in order to protect his identity although i'm not sure what they were protecting it from i mean seriously but whatever Willard Sill was one of the original detectives on this case, and he believes the Prowler saw Evelyn prior to breaking in. Now, other newspaper accounts state other officials believe that Hartley's abduction was part of a botched burglary, burglary attempt. In fact, Evelyn Hartley, all of 15 years old, was wearing a size 34-36 white broadcloth ship-and-shore blouse with pearl buttons, size 16 heavy red denim white stag jeans with side zippers and cuffs rolled up now remember when i told you about that 14 inch window i'm gonna say 34 36 okay that's pretty normal size for a girl her age but a size 16 pant yeah she was a little bottom heavy sorry guys i mean i'm not trying to be rude or anything but she's a little bottom heavy now she was five six five seven and she was very muscular and very athletic. But she definitely, size 16, was probably you know, a little bit on the heavy side. At least what we would think is the heavy side right about now. Anyways, now let's dig into some of these theories of what people think have happened to her. Now, the local paper believes that she was placed in a car and taken away. Possibly south near the Goose Island area. According to Schoenfeld, there were reported screams in that area that night. But nothing of value was taken from the home. So that discounts robbery as a motive. Unless they didn't know that Evelyn was in the house and came upon her by accident. Now bloodhounds were utilized numerous times to track Evelyn's scent. And they always led to the street, which is where it end. Which is why the paper believes that she was put into a vehicle. Which kind of makes sense. Next one, they have a theory about an apparently a peeping Tom that had been operating on the south side of town for over a year at that time. And on the 27th, Dr. Hartley made a public plea for his daughter's return. Later that week, a search was undertaken to search every car in the county. And you guys are going to love this one. The gas station operators would check the cars when they came in to get gas. If an owner refused, well, they reported him to the police. But if the car was okay, then they placed a sticker on it saying, my car is okay. Yeah, I'm going to let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> my car is okay. Evelyn's father requested, took, and passed a lie detector test to eliminate him from suspicion. See, even way back in the 1950s, we still blame the parents. Anyways, the county eventually hired and this is a new theory this is our third one the county eventually hired a joe josephson as the lacrosse county criminal investigator in fact they created a whole new was a 33 year old former army criminologist and an expert with a polygraph 
1954, under the direction of Josephson, mass lie detector tests were conducted on lacrosse area high school boys in an attempt to find more information about Hartley's disappearance. Yeah, I know you guys are going, whoa, what about their personal rights? Yeah, who cares? Authorities had planned to test 1,700 students and faculty, but the lie detecting test was, of course, controversial and was halted after around 300 tests. Now, Josephson worked the Hartley case for years and, well, eventually came up with what he thought was an outline of the suspects. And his theory goes a little something like this. I wish I had some, like, really funny music to play in the background. Like, wouldn't it be great if it did, like, the Super Mario sound? Do, 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 do. Okay, never mind. Anyways, his theory. (laughs) I know you guys are just giggling. I can't help it. I'm stupid. He thinks there was two of them. Wow. Like, that's a revelation, right? And he thinks that they were from the Chicago area. And at the time, these two men were working near the lacrosse area. He thinks the kidnappers were steeplejacks at one point. And yes, before you run for the dictionary, I already looked up what a steeplejack was for you because I had no freaking clue either. A steeplejack is a person who climbs tall structures like chimneys and steeples in order to carry out repairs. Why he couldn't just say a handyman that works on roofs, I don't know. But it's a steeplejack. Now you guys have a new vocabulary word. Aren't you so happy you listened to this podcast? Anyways, he states the larger one of the two wore the size 11 shoes because, you know, short people have big feet, I guess, and operated a whizzer motorbike. The smaller of the two was probably 5'6 or 5'7 and maybe about 130, 40 pounds. I don't know where he got that information from because there's like nothing in this case that would give you this kind of information. But apparently he reached some sign of sort of psychic. I don't know. Over several months, though, Josephson tracked down receipts and sales records related to Wizard motorbikes. But as you can imagine, never came up with a worthwhile subject. So let's talk about what kind of evidence that there is on this case. And surprisingly, for the time, there's actually quite a bit. Several days after Evelyn's disappearance, a blood-stained bra and panties were found near the underpass of Highway 14, which is about two miles from the Rasmussen home. They were Evelyn's size. And her, her mother was unable to confirm if they were in fact her daughters, but they do believe it was hers because, and it should be noted, that this area had been previously searched and the brawn panties were either missed by the entire search party, which is like really hard to believe. Well, maybe not. Or they were placed there afterwards, which is what much, most people think is that they were just dumped there. The detectives believe that they were thrown from a car and blown to that location, which again, I don't know where they get their information from, but you know, yay, they're using their imagination now. Second, a pair of men's blood-stained pants were also found along the same road four miles away from where the bra and panties were found. It was later determined that the blood on the panties was menstrual blood. And Evelyn, according to her father, was menstruating at the time. And I'm sorry, but I am going to stop right there with how the ever-loving motherfucking dad knows that his 15-year-old daughter's menstrual cycle. I mean, really. Like, how why would you even know this 
Because I'm telling you, I was 20 before my dad would even admit that he thought that I had had a period. Let alone know my fucking cycle. I'm just going to say what kind of tight ass was her dad. Anyways. Alright. I'm off my soapbox. Alright. So the blood on the pants as well as the panties was a type A. Same as Evelyn's. Also, the state crime lab stated that they found a good palm print in the blood near the Rasmussen home. Tiny threads of cloth were found in that print, and shreds of red cloth uh, were found in a pool of blood 10 yards away from the Rasmussen home. And if you remember, Evelyn was wearing red slacks at the time of her abduction, which I'm just going to say, okay, I buy that she was on her period because she was wearing red pants because I know, gross. I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> All right. On 1029 of 1953, along U.S. Highway 14, two miles north of Coon Valley, you gotta love these names, detectives find a pair of bloody sneakers, but there's not enough blood on the shoes to determine the type. The shoes were manufactured by the Goodrich Rubber Company on or around June 2nd of 1951, which, by the way, why was Goodrich Rubber Company making shoes? Okay, we'll just leave that there. They were, in fact, size 11, same size as the prints left at the scene, and the soles seemed to match the distinctive prints left in the mud at the scene, as well as the one left in the living room. So, da-da-dum, we have some information. Detectives determined that two separate people seemed to have worn the shoes, and there were wear patterns consistent with a Whizzer motorbike. The type of shoe, that Goodrich hood mogul, was not sold in Wisconsin for three years. In fact, the last place to carry such a shoe was a village store in Viroqua. The shoes were also sold in Iowa, Michigan, Minnesota, and Illinois. Remember our theory from Chicago? Yeah, you do. Now, and I'm going to preface this because there's no other way to put this. This is how it's in the system. An African-American hair was said to be inside one of the shoes. Don't send me emails about that shit because, you know, I'm not like that. So I'm just telling you what the story is. So don't send me an email or send me an email. I'll just ignore it. Either way, the area where the shoe was found was previously searched, which leads detectives to believe that they were placed there in order to mislead the investigation. Dum, dum, dum. The shoes and the jacket had been positively determined to have actually been in the Rasmussen home. Again, they don't tell us how they know that. I I don't know. Psychics, I guess. It had been determined by spectrographic analysis. Whatever the hell that is. A bloodstained jacket was also found along Highway 14 shortly after Evelyn was abducted. So, so far we've got shoes, pants, a jacket, a bra, and a panty. I'm going to say somebody naked. (laughs) Just saying it. I'm putting it out there. Anyways, this bloodstained jacket was picked up by a local farmer who then notified the police of it being in his possession. It was a blue denim overall jacket, size 36, metallic buttons, and the second from the bottom button was missing. It was found around 800 feet north of where the shoes had been located. It was lying inside of the highway and on the same side the shoes were located on. It was stained with human blood. Wear marks running the entire width of the jacket under the armpits, possibly from a safety harness about an inch and three quarters inch wide. 
Bast fibers, which are from flax seeds, like the kind used on scrubbing brushes, were left inside the left pocket. There was metal paint flex on the jacket as well, and a three-inch vertical tear near the buttonholes, which had been machine sewn with a brown thread. Now, I know that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to anybody, but let me break it down like this. Okay, so you have this jacket that has wear marks under the armpits from a possible safety harness, something that somebody might use if they were working on a roof, like cleaning the chimney or something. In addition, you have very thick fibers that are used in scrubbing brushes inside the pocket, like somebody might have been cleaning with a scrub brush and maybe put their hand in their pocket and some of the fibers transferred. Makes a little more sense. Then you have metal paint flecks that are on the jacket. Well, you think of it this way. If you're up on a roof and you're scrubbing something and maybe it's metallic, the paint flecks would probably fall on the jacket. Happens. Makes it a little bit easier, right? I know, because I'm good like that, because I love you guys. All right, so a Bernard J. Lauer was questioned regarding Evelyn's abduction. Now, remember our 14-inch window, because this is going to be very important right now. He was described as a 43-year-old salesman from Euclid, and he was really fat. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help it. That's funny. Literally, he was, he was reported as fat, weighing 235 pounds, and apparently he wasn't very tall. And he was already being held on a rape charge at the time. And he really was in the area at the time, guess what, selling roofing. But his alibi did indeed check out, because seriously, no way was his fat ass getting through that 14-inch window. And you couldn't use butter because, you know, he would have just eaten it. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. I really just can't help myself today, seriously. It's been a very long day, so forgive me. On 10-30-1953, a lacrosse man was questioned and cleared of any involvement after he was picked up on a rape complaint, accused of raping a 15-year-old girl. Hmm, and how old was she again? Oh yeah, 15. Now, couldn't find any news report of the time that would name this person. Could possibly been this Bernard Lauer, but they kind of described him a little bit differently because they said he was from lacrosse. They also said that he was not that. So don't know if it's two different people, but you know, whatever. Again, on 10-30-53, the FBI informed lacrosse County District Attorney John Bossard that they would not be entering the case. Now, Bossard was informed by an agent heading up the Milwaukee office, a Robert L. Murphy, who told Bossard or, well, stated, according to Bossard, Murphy advised me that in his opinion there is no federal offense that present evidence can substantiate and that the FBI is unable to come in and give us assistance. Well, this, my friends, was the biggest idiotic technicality on the face of the freaking planet. Because the FBI took Bossard's description of the abduction as a sex crime rather than a kidnapping. Because guess what? A kidnapping would be a federal offense and a sex crime, well, isn't. And they thought because she was 15, well, she must have run away. Somebody really needs to hit Murphy on the head with a freaking hammer because, you know what? This case could be classified as both. And I'm just going to leave it with what a fucking asshat. In 1954, Sheriff Ivan Wright died of a heart attack, which was aggravated due to overwork, which <laughs> I'm just going to say, really? 
because it doesn't seem like they did much work. Now, they blamed his death on the Hartley case. Even though Mr. Hartley praised the sheriff's efforts, many in the surrounding area felt quite differently about it. In fact, a neighbor told the Chicago Tribune reporter two months after the abduction that what we need here is an investigation of the investigators in the Hartley case. If you want to get away with murder, just move to lacrosse. Those are pretty strong words. Just saying. Now, after the kidnapping, more than 3,000 Boy Scouts, high school students, Civil Air Patrol, and citizens engaged in an air, river, and land search to no avail. Authorities, authorities finally considered it to be a runaway case until they found the blood. And guess what? They didn't bother to protect the crime scene because why would they? Police were looking for an automobile that was seen in the area at the time that Evelyn was abducted, but... They had mixed up the license plates numbers, so they were searching for the wrong car for nearly three months. Now, I love my boys in blue, don't get me wrong. But I'm the first one to call shenanigans when they screw stuff up. And this is definitely shenanigans. So if you're military or police, firefighter, whatever, know that I love you deeply and I think you have a hard job and I appreciate everything that you do. But when you do something stupid like this, I'm going to call you an asshat. Get over it. All right. At one point, the police had a 17-year-old suspect who was in the possession of a pair of bloody trousers. Guess what? He was released on the vague explanation that it was chicken blood. He was actually an unemployed laborer and was arrested shortly after Evelyn disappeared. And according to the articles at the time that when he was released, he fled to Texas. And they never mentioned his name. And the police later admitted that they lost the trousers. Asshats. Detectives investigated a former lacrosse man that then lived in Superior, Wisconsin. He was at one time considered a, a suspect, but was eventually cleared. The man was named Gerald W. Adams. He was still held on a morals charge at the time. Then we had a Vernon F. Kaler, who was a Fairmount, Minnesota farmer, who was also investigated, but he was cleared of any involvement. Now, Lacrosse County had a higher number of convicted sex deviants per capita than any other county in Wisconsin. I'm just going to say that sentence alone makes me want to move to Wisconsin. I don't know why. <laughs> I know we're mass moving to Wisconsin. I got it. Somebody pick me up. All right. So approximately 75 sex offenders were questioned and they were all cleared. Over the years, detective questioned a South Dakota farm worker, a Duluth, Minnesota mechanic, a Fond du Lac laborer, and a Minnesota steeplejack by the name of Roy Matson. none of which were arrested. Then that brings us to 1971. In 1971, a truly dumbass by the name of Tommy Thompson was arrested for cashing bad checks. He later told police that he kidnapped, raped, and murdered Evelyn Hartley back in 53. Police checked his story and found out that this bozo was in prison in Minnesota at the time. And he was later charged for making a false statement, which I'm going to say is probably the one thing in this entire case that I'm going to give the police props for, is to give this asshat one more divot. <laughs> Anyways, in August of 1954... Another dipshit was arrested for attempting to extort $500 from the Hartley family. 
He claimed to know information regarding her disappearance. Police caught the rocket scientist and promptly arrested him. He was actually one of the many questioned earlier in the investigation, and he had passed a polygraph at the time and had been cleared. I don't know about you, but I'm starting to think that maybe they should have looked a little harder at him. Anyways, Havard Teague was arrested in relation to two similar attacks upon women in Madison, Wisconsin. In one of the attacks, he entered through a basement window, down and familiar, hit a woman with a slapjack, causing her to bleed. He fled when in both attacks, the women screamed. One of the women picked him out of a photograph, and there were interesting correlations with this man and Evelyn's abduction. When apprehended, this man was driving a stolen car from, you guessed it, Chicago. And guess what? It was tan in color with Illinois license plates, similar to the one reported in the area of the time of Evelyn's abduction. And within the car was a lead pipe with, you guessed it, human hair on it. And by the way, he was African-American. Yeah, I'm sorry to say that. Now, another African-American suspect that was looked into was John J. Watson. His prints were compared with the prints left at the Hartley crime scene. Nothing apparently came of this. He was convicted in 1954 of carnal knowledge and abuse. He was paroled twice, and he was eventually convicted of the rape and murder of Edna Mouch in 1958. And he was also responsible for attacking two women with a hammer in 1980, killing one, he eventually died on November the 12th of 2007 at the age of 86. And I'm sorry to say it, I don't normally say bad things about the dead, but <laughs> thank goodness. Anyways, lastly, after his arrest, Ed Gein, which I know you guys all know who Ed Gein is. If not, you need to Google it. He was considered a suspect in Hartley's disappearance since he was visiting a relative a few blocks away from the area of Hartley's disappearance at the time. However, police found no trace of Hartley's remains during a search of his property. Gein denied involvement in Hartley's disappearance and passed two lie detector tests in November 1957. Authorities announced that Gein had been cleared of any connection to the disappearance of Hartley and a Georgia Weckler, an eight-year-old that had disappeared in 1947. After being committed to the mental institution, Gein was later declared insane, cause duh, and died in 1984, but yet some people still consider him a suspect. In 2004, a man named Mel Williams approached the police with a discussion that he had recorded years earlier at a bar. In spite of the fact that his objective was to record a band which was there playing, the discussion between two men was inadvertently recorded as well. On the tape, one of the men, Clyde Tywee Peterson, embroiled himself, Jack Golfair, and an anonymous outsider in the vanishing asserting that Evelyn Hartley was killed and murdered in Lafarge, Wisconsin, after her abduction. Colfair and the anonymous party are currently, well, dead. In spite of the fact that authorities vowed the Hartley family to explore the leads, whereas no further improvements were ever constructed since then. The kidnapping of Evelyn started perhaps the greatest pursuit in the history of Wisconsin. 
Among other extraordinary measures, investigators directed mass quests of nearby vehicles and gave lie detector tests to all the students and educators at Evelyn's school. They took the shoes and the coat to 31 distinct networks in the zone and showed them to an approximated 10,000 individuals, yet nobody recognized them or remembered them. Numerous suspects were addressed throughout the long term. There just wasn't any proof to embroil anybody in this. Yet, the mysterious and murderous case of Evelyn's remains unsolved, being the most infamous and vexing missing persons case ever in history of La Crosse County. And several authors have tackled the mystery through books and other media, because it's been years since her disappearance, and unfortunately her dead body was never found, and no one was ever charged with her disappearance. As when she was last seen the evening, she was abducted, but that doesn't mean that Evelyn's case is closed. I leave you with this. Rumor has it that Evelyn is buried under Highway 33, which was paved a few days after her disappearance. And with that, my darlings, we've come to the end of our episode. I thank you for joining me here today, and I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me and tell me what you think. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you want to tell me what you think, you want to call me a nasty name, drop me a line. I do reply to all emails, but you know, if you call me a nasty name, I'm probably just going to say, fuck off. And on that note, <laughs> that's all the time that I have for you this evening, my darlings. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you know what? Don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love ya. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.